I'm Brian Martin with Asia Mountain Outfitters, and you're listening to the RNA Outdoors Podcast. Welcome to the RNA Outdoors Podcast, where expert advice becomes real results. At RNA, we are public land DIY conservationists that like to share our passion for the outdoors. So join us and our team as we interview professionals in the industry to share insight knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. Like, like I mean, I I can think of crazy lines like fast. Another one is like now that now that Trump is the next president, I hear that many of the Hollywood stars would become a resident of Canada or Mars <laughs> as they find a new as they find a new home or drive their electric cars and work on their next plastic surgery scars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's another one. Like sometimes he speaks before thinking of the outcome, but wouldn't it be great if when there is less PC in Washington D.C. And wanted it to be funny if he hired a Playboy bunny to be Secretary of State. I'm sure Putin would think this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Q&A on the TNA. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Can I say that? Huh? <laughs> Can we say <laughs> Yeah, you're fine. Okay, we're closing down what's been a great week here in Reno, Nevada. Uh, it's been uh, an awesome week for Sheep Week 2017, the Sheep Show here in Reno, Nevada. Um, there's been just a lot of great activities, a lot of camaraderie. It's been neat to catch up with a lot of friends and just, you know, walk around the expo and, and just meet a lot of cool folks all over the world. So today you're tuned into the RNA Outdoors podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Paw, and we are broadcasting to you from a cold and snowy Reno, Nevada this morning. A lot of the highways are shutting down and the snow came down pretty heavy last night. So, um, it's going to make for some pretty busy travel for folks trying to get out of here, but... Before we, we close down the sheep show, I really wanted to catch up um, uh, with a guy who I think is a very distinguished and all-around mountain hunter and guide. Um, I reached out to Brian uh, last week and uh, was really wanting to try to get him on the podcast uh, just based on a lot of the uh, you know YouTube videos and, and really word of mouth and reputation that I heard about Asian Mountain Outfitters. Brian has traveled all over the world guiding and hunting and has a well-deserved reputation for his technical knowledge of gear, tactics, and travel logistics. He's also an accomplished hunting editor uh, for the Western Hunter magazine and has published many articles and blogs in regards to long-range backpack hunting and gear breakdowns. Um, he was actually really, um, really busy in the sheep week. He had multiple seminars he was doing. He had his booth set up uh, at uh, booth 648 at the actual sheep show. So just a lot of stuff going on for Brian. So I'm fortunate to be able to cut out a little bit of his time this morning to talk to him. So I'd like to welcome Brian Morton to the podcast. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we do um, with all our guests to try to just kind of break the ice a little bit and, and help the guests understand kind of, you know, who you are and, and uh, you know, just provide a little bit of a background around you. We, we do what's called the quick draw Q&A, which this morning you gave me a better idea, maybe call it the Q&A on the TNA. So you can maybe elaborate more on that. But basically what I'll do is um, I've got a series of questions I'm going to ask you um, and just provide, you know, single answers. And then if there's any, you know, questions after that, we can elaborate afterwards. So 
Anyway, if you had the option at a doll sheep or a stone sheep, what would it be? Stone sheep. Stone sheep. How about Marco Polo or an Aragali? Marco Polo. Ibex or a Tur? Ibex. Would you rather hunt at 16,000 feet or 5,000 feet? 16,500. Would you rather hunt in minus 45 degree weather or 85 degree weather? Zero. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Probably 85. Yeah. Uh, would you rather take merino wool or use synthetics? Uh, synthetics. Would you rather guide a male or a female? Male. Okay. Would you, in your pack, would you rather take nylon paracord or duct tape? Um, good question. Hopefully don't need either. Uh, let's go with nylon paracord. Okay. Um, for you personally, would you rather archery hunt, muzzleload hunt, or rifle hunt? Rifle. In terms of optics, uh, Swarovski, Zeiss, or Leica? Uh, Swarovski. Okay, if you're back in the back country and you had to rely on either toilet paper or wet wipes, what would it be? Chode wipes. Chode wipes, okay. Yep. And lastly for you, would you rather guide or would you rather hunt personally? Hunt. Hunt, cool. Okay, um, so hopefully that kind of gives the listeners just a little bit of a, uh, a background about Brian and, and some, of the, some of the different types of things he would rather choose versus, uh, you know, what some, some maybe other guests uh, would have chosen in the past, so... Anyway, today, looking at our topics, uh, really what we're going to dig into is Brian's passion around hunting and guiding, kind of where that started. We're going to dig into a little bit of gear uh, and ask him some questions um, specifically to, to breaking down kind of his pack. And, you know, he is kind of known as the gear guru. So we're going to dig into that. Uh, and then we're going to discuss uh, just kind of a, a tail out where he's going to be continuing on for his trade show circuit uh, and then any closing comments. So. Brian, just to kind of open it up um, in, for the uh, intro topic, you know, kind of how did you get your start in hunting and guiding? I know you, you had lived in Montana for a series of years, and you were, I believe, born and raised in Oregon. So did it kind of start grassroots in that area? It started when I was, you know, hunting deer and birds and coyotes with my dad and the family. And then um, as I got closer to going to college, I decided that I didn't really know for sure what I wanted to take. I was a good student, ended up taking engineering because I could see that the guys who were taking wildlife, biology, and all those more fun classes never had jobs that allowed them to go hunting or guiding. So I thought maybe I'll end up being a hunting guide at some point or own an outfitting company. So when I was about 18, 19, I met an outfitter that uh, was originally from the U.S., moved to Canada, and had his own hunting company in British Columbia. And so I was able to go up and do some summer, um, give him a hand in the summer and early fall, uh, starting in 1991, and I started also doing. I just when I was I went to school at Oregon State University. I would leave on the weekends. I'd try to schedule my classes. So I was done on Thursday night or Friday morning, and then I would leave and go to Steens Mountain or Hart Mountain, Poker Jim Ridge, the Wallowa Mountains, the Lost Deans, um, the Imnaha River, and go look at sheep mm-hmm. and get good at judging them. I started doing that when I was about 19. I start I was a really avid bow hunter then too. Um, so I'd shoot my bow all the time, run the stadium stairs. I used to take 10 kind of running classes to stay in shape. And, um, stay in sheep shape. Exactly. And, uh, you know, water polo class and whatever I could do to, you know, you know yeah, basically stay fit and to learn about the hunting. So I, I went to Canada for two summers, um, came back and finished my engineering degree. But it really wasn't what I wanted to do. So I ended up moving to Montana, did ranch and ranch real estate consulting and help people buy and sell outfitting businesses to better understand the industry more. I, I mean, I realized you're not going to get rich becoming an outfitter. But at that point, I, I liked hunting too much to really focus on normal work. There's no way I could have been a company man 
mm-hmm. you know, getting two weeks of paid vacation, working for Kiwi Pacific or Morrison Knudsen or, yeah. you know, Bechtel or these big construction Corporate, companies yeah, that my friends America. went to work for. So, yeah, and then I said, well, well, Montana's not very wild compared to British Columbia. Too many, too, too small a hunting areas, not enough species diversification, too many draw, drawing, um, you know, constrictions of your clients don't draw tags, you, you know, can't take them hunting. Um, so I decided, you know, I want to go to BC or Yukon, Northwest Territories. Um, so I moved up there, uh, bought a hunting area, and yeah, so I'm now a dual resident, or uh, a dual citizen of both the U.S. and Canada. Okay. So in your time in Montana, it's kind of a small world. When we were talking earlier this week on the phone, um, we were talking a little bit about some of the elk hunting that we've done, and we've actually elk hunted in pretty similar areas. And then when I was at the expo, I ran into Randy Newberg, and um, your name was brought up, and he goes, oh, yeah, Brian's one of my clients. You know, I'm a CPA. It's just it's amazing how small the world is in the hunting industry. Yeah, especially if you lived in Bozeman, Montana. A lot of people... Uh, in the hunting and outdoor world have been in Bozeman or know somebody there. Sure, yeah. That's why I moved there. Yeah, it's one uh, of the meccas in Montana, at least from an outdoor standpoint. Exactly. Okay, um, in terms of your passion for kind of, you know, the hardcore backpack hunting, um, you know, that's that's obviously a trait that a lot of folks are either they're in or they're out. You know, most people don't say, yeah, I'm going to sign up for a 10-day backpack hunt where I'm going to put everything on my back for 10 days and live out of that. So where did that come from? Was that something that you've always had a passion for, or did that come over time as you've started to do some of these long-range hunts? Well, I started liking backpacking. I was probably a teenager. Late teenager, we went on a couple of trips with like a 4-H or FFA group. Um, you know, that was my first backpacking. And we had to always pack the deer on a ranch and, and a BLM property that was shot down off the canyons. I'd have to, you know, use a backpack. When I went to Canada when I was 19, I realized that if you didn't have a backpack, you couldn't get access to some of the sheep and goat areas. So I, would, I took a backpack up there. It originally was a Camp Trails aluminum frame. And you can just stay out and sleep where the animals are, and it's a waste of time to come back to the horses every night mm-hmm. and come back to a heated cabin. So I guess if you're an older person or frail or, um, you know, you're not very fit, then backpack hunting is misery. But if you're fit and uh, you have to have a little bit of mental toughness to do it for sure because it's not it's not really fun. But people have the wrong attitude about backpacking. And they look at, oh, i got to climb that damn mountain. I look at it as, well, I gotta, well, as soon as I get to the top of the mountain, I look how much I can see. Sure. So what you have to association. It's like trying to lose weight. You can't look at a donut and say, oh, my God, I love donuts. Um, it make me feel so good. You have to look at a donut and say, oh, my God, if I eat that, my dick due disease is going to get worse, and I'm going to be more fat tomorrow than I am today. So it has to be association. So if you associate backpack hunting with torture and um, you know misery and pain and sweat, then it's going to be bad. It's sure. like that's a glass half full type of a person. Yeah. I mean, half empty. You have to look at it as half full. As you know, every step I take is closer to finding that stone ram. Yeah. And when I shoot it, I don't have to go back and take care of the horses. You know, we can enjoy. We don't have to hike in the dark for two or three hours. You wake up and you can be hunting. Yeah. And that's what I like about it, the mobility. And because I'm a hunter first. So what is the best way to hunt and find animals is live where they do quiet secretly without spreading a lot of odor and noise and that's backpack hunting you know mm-hmm. setting up a big camp with chainsaws and everything yeah it's great and nice and if it's miserable weather uh, like minus 45 like you asked in the question then obviously i don't think that's going to be a fun choice to go backpacking in that but in general with equipment we have today you can backpack comfortably i'm gonna say 100 degrees fahrenheit's not comfortable i've done it. it's miserable um i prefer you know like between 20 degrees and 50 degrees is perfect mm-hmm. but if it's zero i don't mind either you just have to have really good footwear yeah but you don't sweat very much yeah yeah exactly yeah so um it's interesting um 
you know, as you were talking about kind of where this passion came from, um, you know, backpack hunting, when you, when you tell folks, you know, Hey, you're going to come out to Asia and, and, and do a combo hunt. I mean, do you have to mentally prepare them or do you provide them information? Like, Hey, this is not for the faint of heart, right? We're going to be at 15,000 feet and it's going to be cold. And how do you, how do you mentally prepare folks for that? You don't really, either people have it or they don't have it at, at that age, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you're taking a high school kid that never did anything and he, you're kind of taking a, a virgin hunter out. I mean, most of the guys we take have um, done this for years. Some of them have never done it at that level. But the hunting in Asia probably in some ways is not as difficult as the backpack hunting we did and I have done for stone sheep, mountain goats, bighorn, because you have to carry everything with you on your back. Um, in Asia, usually we do day hunting. Um, because most guys can't physically carry a 60-pound pack at 15,000 mm-hmm. feet. I mean, you can, but it's going to take some acclimatization. Yeah. Or we use horses, and we use jeeps, and there's no trees, and they don't have the river crossings. So other than the elevation and some of the cold weather, in my opinion, Asian, is, Asian hunting is easier. A game is more plentiful, easier to find. You don't have resident hunters. Um, the animals are spooky, though. They're more spooky, so you'll have to be a better shot. Mm-hmm. But if you can shoot well and hike decently, Asia is doable for people. You know, doing a, a full-on uh, backpack hunt with Arctic Red Adventures or somebody like Riley Pitts in the Brooks Range or, you know, other guys in, in the Alaska Range, these kind of hunts are really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, there is nobody there to carry your carry you, and, and uh, when you got baboon ash, you got to take care of that. You know, all these things happen there. Where in Asia, we don't have those problems. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I've done now over 100 probably one week or longer backpack type hunts you know if you, I mean, probably a couple of those you could say were horse oriented with some backpacking combined but that's a lot i mean so it it, it does take its toll on a guy's body at the end of the time but for me the hardest thing is when you get massive weights hiking out with the animal on your mm-hmm. back that's what breaks you down hiking 70 80 pounds if you're fit is not that bad um hiking out with 120 to 150 pounds with a cape and skin and and meat and, and horns and antlers, that's that's what does it. That extra weight on your shoulders just breaks a guy down. Yeah. And yeah. you're pushing yourself hard because you're not really trying to when you're hunting you kinda you don't want to hit too high heart rate. You don't want to go too hard, otherwise you hit the wall. When you're coming out sometimes it's a grind. People want to well let's get out fast. And so you push yourself, it's like you feel like you ran a marathon. hmm Yeah. But, yeah. When you put that kind of weight on your back, you need to be you need to be planned and prepared yeah. for it because you're not only, like you say, you're putting the animal, you've got all your gear that you've had on yeah. your back for the last 10 days as well. Yeah, so most of the clients I'm guiding in, in, in Asia, again, the backpacking is not as critical as, for me, the most important thing is probably the shooting. Yeah. And um, But a lot of the guys just, they have experience with it. But it's, it's funny, when you... When I take a personal hunt like that, I, I always tell them, I said, we'll find your weakness. You will have a weakness out here. Whether it's your... In, your Lack of enjoyment for long traveling, which how can you really enjoy that when you're sitting in a Jeep for 20 hours and airplanes for 20 hours? The food, the cold weather, mm-hmm. the shooting, the high altitude, which makes you function poorly, uh, riding a horse, being on the cliffs. I mean, there's something that language barrier, uh, you know, having uh, getting diarrhea from either some of the medications you're taking or just from the food. And, and you can get symptoms from high altitude, too, that make you sick. So all that stuff adds up. Somebody, you, everybody's going to have something. That gets underneath their skin, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and that's what it's interesting to see. And I actually end up just laughing about it because I know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of which one is it going to be. Sure. Yeah, and you've seen it at a hundred different hunts. You've probably seen every, every wide gamut of everything that could happen. Yeah, you're still learning. Um, 
but most of the time, it, it's it, the learning curve is down. I mean, probably still always learning a lot about business and people's characters. But as far as actual hunting goes, um, I'm not saying I'm done learning, but I've done enough that you you pretty well have an idea what can and can't happen. Mm -hmm. But yeah. each situation is different, yeah. you know, for sure. Lots of scenarios. You have to be open to, and I like that's one thing about hunting with different good hunters from around the world. Yeah, I'll learn a little bit from them, whether it's a new place to go hunting, um, a new contact, uh, a new method for judging an animal. or And so you always learn. You always, always want to keep an open mind. I, I ask a lot of questions uh, from all, all people because it's interesting. Otherwise, it gets boring just yeah. talking about yourself or talking about, uh, you know, the, the presidential election. Yeah. <laughs> that could be good or bad depending on exactly. who you're talking to. Well, most of our clients, uh, they, they were on one side of the fence. Sure. They yeah. weren't on the other side. Most folks at the whole expo were on the let's, good side of the let's fence. Let's put it this way. None of, none of my clients were protesting the last couple of days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, none of my friends were either. Yeah. So um, you're real, pretty much known as the gear guru. When I Googled your name and I typed that in, that's basically what came up was, you know, basically an expert uh, in, in backpack um, you know, high hardcore backpack hunting and, and gear. So let's dig a little bit into your pack and gear and understand. So <clears throat> to you, what's one of the most important aspects to backpack country backpack hunting? Is it to you, is it the weight of the pack? Is it the quality of the pack or is it a combination of both? Or what, what in your mind is critical when you decide to take these types of trips? That's pretty easy. There's two, the two most important things for a backpacker is your boots and your backpack. The way the pack is really, in my opinion, everybody puts much too much merit on the weight. Well, if you have a five-pound pack, a seven-pound pack, an eight-pound pack, and you're carrying 100 pounds, pretty insignificant. Now, I mean, I used to hunt for years with a mystery ranch. It was called the Gigantor on the nice frame. It was 13 pounds. It was 8,500 cubic inches. So when you have 145 pounds in it, it'll hold it. You put 145 pounds in a five-pound pack, it'll explode. Yeah. There's not the stitching it's and, and the material's not there. I mean, it might work, but you can't use it as a guide. But pretty, pretty much what we, there's only two packs that really consistently work for us when we were guiding really hardcore in the, you know, between, say, 99 and 2010 in, in British Columbia. And that was either the Mystery Ranch pack, um, the, the heavy-duty ones, or the Barney Sports pack that Bob Hodson made. Those are the two. You could, other ones would work. Um, you know, the Kafaro back then was good, but not as good as it is now. They've came a long ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the, a lot of the other companies' packs just wouldn't hold up. You'd have guys that show up with Arc'teryx packs or, you know, Ospreys, and those are good. Those are good clients' packs, but they're not ones that the guides can use for day after day after day after yeah. day. Yeah. So now we have more options, but still a lot of the options out there for the hardcore extreme guys um, won't last that long. So if you if you go in the five or six pound pack and you drop it f fully loaded, uh, you know, you have more chance of blowing out the seam, cracking something. Mm -hmm. You know, you have... Um, Probably the strongest packs right now on the market would be, say, like the one of the Kafaru packs is really good. Um, say the Stone Glacier is a really good pack, but it's not a heavy pack. So I'd say from a guide standpoint, you know, these really ultralight fabrics, um, you know, ab abrasion use, you can wear any of them out quickly. But that's part of the deal. I mean, mm -hmm. if, you, if weight is an issue for you, then just get light packs and know that you're going to have to replace stuff on them more quickly. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, for me, I always hunt with a big pack because I can make it small. But I don't want a small pack that I can't make big. So I'll hunt, day hunt with a 7,000 cubic inch pack. So if I shoot something and I don't want to come back in, we'll just take the whole thing in one trip. Yeah. you got a 4,000 or 3,000 cubic inch pack and you got to strap a big set of horns and antlers and a life-size stone sheep cape in it, it's not going in. It's going to look like a Christmas tree with shit hanging everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so. easier to be able to 
expanded out to seven, eight thousand <clears throat> cubic centimeters than it is to try to, you know, yep. start low and not be able to have that additional capacity. Exactly. So you're talking about feed. I think for me, feed are one of probably one of the most important things in terms of backcountry and backpack hunting. So, in your, what's kind of your um, thought process around boots and how you wear socks? What's kind of your setup around boots and socks? Well, I have narrow feet, not narrow, narrow, but low volume feet. I got weak ankles from uh, too many sports injuries. So I need a boot that has good ankle support. I need a boot that's somewhat rigid. I don't want to really, like a tennis shoe type boot's not good for me, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a, not a small guy, and carrying the big weight, it just flexes your foot too much. I've suffered from plantar fasciitis over the years, so I, I believe in getting custom orthotics um, of some kind, or at least a high-quality one, like a minimal, like a super feet. Like Kenetrek makes a pretty decent one. There's a company called Soul that makes one. I have a, some, some from a guy called uh, Doctors Orthotics, that I, I found out through um, Kenetrek also sold them at the time, and I talked to him dire- directly, and those were actually quite good. I've also had a custom couple custom orthotics from one of the doctors uh, that I used to see in, in uh, Bozeman, Montana, and then also one in near where my family lives in Redmond, Oregon. So I've got different ones, but at the end of the day, you don't want them too hard. You don't want them rigid because that can make the problem bad. You want to be able to flex, but you need to, to take some of the cushion off just your heel and your, your ball of your foot. You need to, otherwise, your foot will flatten with all that weight. I mean, mm-hmm. most humans, you know, in, 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 in past times, they didn't weigh 250 to 300 pounds, and you're walking around with a full pack at maybe 350. Um, that's not good on your feet. No. And so unless you're walking in sand or your feet contour, it'll flatten your feet out. So you need to have an or, a good orthotic. Um, but you can also, a good orthotic can also cause you to get blisters on the, your instep because of the pressure it puts. So when you're side healing a lot with heavy weight, you have to, in my opinion, for me anyway, I always had to tape the, my feet. Mm-hmm. So I tape my heels and I tape, tape my instep between the ball, my ball, my foot, and my heels so it, I don't get friction mm-hmm. uh, blisters from hiking side healing. So that was very critical. I always wear two pairs of socks. I find one is not good enough. For one, I always need the volume. So either a thin one um, and, a, and a heavy one or two medium ones. I found sometimes the ultra-thin ones aren't as comfortable as sometimes two medium ones. So just play around. Uh, my advice to people is have a variety of socks from thin to, to medium to, to heavy to ultra-heavy and see what works for you. Mm-hmm. But some people like one pair of socks. I don't. I do way better with two. Yeah. And um, a little, bit, little more stuff to absorb the moisture, a little warmer. But you don't want to have too tight of a boot either. If it's too tight, some guys have thick feet and they end up wearing you know just one pair of socks. So maybe they need to get a wider boot, boot, maybe a half a size longer. Usually if you're a little bit longer than you need, unless you're like ice climbing or something where you need the toe rigidity, um, with crampons, it's okay to have it a little bit long. It's also warmer. If you've got a little dead airspace on your toe, it's a lot warmer, and you're not going to lose your toenails going downhill. Mm-hmm. So that's all things to think about. Um, as far as the, the boot, uh, there's some really good technical boots. I mean, some of the most common you know, hunting boots used to be like Danner boots and Rocky boots, but those companies don't really make mountaineering-type boots. Um, you look at, uh, you know, Schnee's and Kenetrek, and um, there's Crispy now, mm-hmm. and, you know, QU is making their own boots. you got to find the boot. You know, Loa is a really good boot company. Uh, Mendel's a good boot company. Depends on what you like. Some pe- I, I tell people buy two or three pairs. Find out which fits your foot well. Find what, what you like. Um, it's really, really important that it fits. Um, me, I, I wear a lot of Kenetrek boots because they, I, they make, they, they'll custom make a boot for me uh, to te- test some of their soles. And their products in, in a narrow, um, and I, they make one with the ankle brace put in, built in, which I like for me. Mm-hmm. Not everybody likes that. 
Um, and I like their, they, they make a, a guide sole, a boot with a guide sole on it. And I like that when it lasts longer. So, but I also, I love Loa's and I also lo, lo, love uh, La Sportiva. They all are a, a smaller last, you know, mm-hmm. narrower last than they fit my feet. I can't wear properly like hand wags. I can't wear Scarpas, I can't wear um, Mandel very well. I have to put too many insoles inside to take up the room in order to get the length that I need to fit my foot. So those boots are good, but I can't wear them. Snays granted, I can't wear. So you just have to look and see what fits your foot. So and know your foot. You got to find the right one. Once you know what your foot is, it's easier to go shopping too. There's just some boot companies you just probably have to avoid, or at least maybe they have to have a different model. Yeah. So that's what works for me anyway. There's so many options out there now. I know, like Lathrop, they do a you know that's a handwag. Yeah, they'll yep. actually send a mold of your foot and they'll build a you know a boot based on your foot. But um, I'm I'm a Kenetrek guy. I've had Kenetreks for quite a few years and. I was sold them in and I put them on my feet. See, I've got a wide foot. so And they make a wide, and they, they make, make a standard, a and they make a narrow. Yeah, so the so, wide's perfect for my foot. Yeah, Kenetrek can pretty well fit almost anybody, probably as good as any boot company right now. Some people say they're not as technical, um, you know, but they're simple. But the one thing is you can put them on and go hiking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that means they're probably not as rigid as some, though, too. So yeah. if you want that rigid. My favorite boot for extreme hunting is a La Sportiva Spantic. And that's a kick-ass boot, but it's $700. It's a double boot, leather synthetic. It's not uh, plastic, so it doesn't mm-hmm. squeak, squeak bad. Sure. And that's what I wear on extreme hunts. And if I'm going to Nepal or I'm going to Tajikistan in January or December, um, it's either that or a pack boot. And pack boots don't give me any ankle support. Yeah. i got to wear ankle braces. So yeah. I love the, the Kenetrek Northerns. Um, they're an excellent boot for a lot of my clients. Riding horses, they don't get cold feet. And, and we had one group of three women that hunted with us this year. And women are typically get colder feet and colder hands than men. Mm-hmm. Like I've hunted with my sister for years and they're almost consistently that way. So they always need to get a little bit warmer boot than a guy. Like if a boot guy says I'm fine with 400 gram, then I tell the woman to get an 800 to 1,000 gram. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Same thing with the pack boots. Don't get the standard standard weight, get the double insulated. And they loved it because you spend a lot of time on a horse in Kyrgyzstan riding. It might be two, three hours at a time. You might not hardly hike at all all day. I'm just hiking downhill to you know to, so the horses don't get soared up. And um, that doesn't really get you sweating that much. So, and you don't, but yeah, otherwise, guys, you get just cold feet. And then you got to walk. And then the hunters are super tired because they can't keep up with the horses. And so you just got to have really good footwear when you're doing these kind of hunts. And British Columbia and Alaska, the big thing is with moisture. Your feet get wet easily from sweat, from crossing a creek, and you, and you stepped on the wrong rock. And so day after day, anytime you have a Gore-Tex boot, it won't dry out properly. So the ability to take the liner out of the boot, like the La Sportiva Spandex or the Kenetrek pack boots, and let them dry at night, put them inside your sleeping bag, that's nice. If you have a Gore-Tex tight boot um, with a synth- uh, synthetic sens- insulation like Thinsulate, it will dry more slowly. And in fact, it really won't dry over the course of a hunt. So every day it gets a little bit worse. Mm. I mean, you can take a pair of Crocs or some kind of thing and, and you're sitting on the mountain and, and yeah. take your shoes off and let them air dry. If you've got a good hard wind with some warm air, but a lot of times it's freezing. So I never take my boots off. If it's below freezing, <laughs> I mean, my boots aren't coming off. And you yeah. go to the tent and now they're, they're never going to have a chance to dry out. So every day they get a little bit worse. So... I mean, you got to change your socks or sleep with your damp socks on at night mm-hmm. to, you know, you have to get, if you just take your socks off and put them damp on every morning, they're going to be worse and worse and worse. Or yeah. you got to pack a new sock every day, which is a waste, too much weight and bulk. So I just wear them to bed for about three, four days, and I change every three or four days. Okay. And if they're super wet, don't wear them to bed because your sleeping bag will be too wet. Yeah. So, yeah. and then you just try and dry them out when you can. Okay, good. That's good information about boots. And I, I agree. I think feet are probably the most critical part if your feet aren't happy on the mountain then 
nothing's happy. Well, it's it like a horse. Matter. Yeah, if a horse is limping and he's lamed up, he's useless to you. And if the hunter is limping, I mean, I mean, we can we can grind through it as people better than an animal probably because we understand. But I guarantee you, we're not going to do well. You're going to be miserable. Yep. So you got to take care of the feet before you get the blister. Fix the hot spots. Yep, absolutely. If you do get a blister, you got to know how to fix them too. And there's a real art in doing that. Yeah. So on your long range, you know, pack-ins, what's kind of a, what's something that you just can't live without? I mean, if there was something that you take on every one of your trips or multiple things, what would that be? A headlamp. I mean, (laughs) I always do stuff in the dark, so I need a headlamp. Um, Obviously, we're not talking about pants and boots because those things you have to have, otherwise you're, you know. Yeah. A good pair of boxer briefs that doesn't give a baboon ass is always nice. Uh you use merino or synthetics no, for that? I actually prefer synthetic. Even though you get it more stink, they're slicker. And I've merino I used to love until I hiked in really wet conditions. And wool doesn't dry as it quick. It doesn't dry, yeah. And I actually got the worst baboon bass ever wearing merinos. Um, so there's a there's a product they call Sport Shield, uh, and that's really good. When you start to get chafing, you can put that on. It prevents a lot of further pain. Sure. Or, or you can just put it on before you do these trips. Uh, I put on every morning or a couple times a day, and it really helps. You yeah. get these little individual wipes. Nothing yeah. more miserable than being on the mountain and you can't walk. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I've, I've had a bleeding once. So, I mean, you don't like that. You don't want that. And it's sore for almost two weeks. Ugh. Had no, it thanks. where it almost crusted up where, you know, it gets hard. Yeah. You know, I, one, of my, one of my guides had even worse than me once. And so, yeah, it's not cool. It's not good. Yeah. So what's your take on trekking poles? Is that an absolute must, or are they something that you could live without on the mountain? It's, it's kind of like, I mean, I think you need them. Uh, I don't think you have to have them. I mean, like a woman can play volleyball without a sports bra on, but she's going to be happy with a sports bra. Sure. You know, a guy's going to be happy with a jock strap if he's running the 100-meter dash and he's, you know, hung like don- long dong silver. So, I mean, having a trekking pole, it's just an extra support. It's that extra third leg so when you're walking, I, and I only usually carry one. So if you're traveling across the tundra and you got two walking poles, that's great. But usually I'm not traveling across the tundra on a walking trail. Mm-hmm. I'm walking in boulders and cliffs, and I need one hand sometimes to hold against the cliffs or pull myself up through vegetation. So two poles is an inconvenience for me. So I like one. Um, I think they're extremely valuable. They'll prevent a lot of wrecks or easier on your knees. It's, again, especially crossing creeks. Otherwise, you've got to break sticks off. Yeah, going uh, downhill, they're, they're, I know. Yeah, I, I usually use a black diamond, a lucky, the carbon fiber ones, the good ones that cost like $120 a set, $140 a set. I've never broke one yet. Um, you could break them. I think one of my clients cracked one once doing something. I don't know what happened. Uh, you can step on them or something like that and break them. But in general, I've never broke a carbon fiber. I broke several aluminums and titanium ones. But never a carbon fiber. But I usually change them every two years mm-hmm. and give them to a guy that needs one or something. But, I mean, if I'm going on a trip, I always take two just in case one breaks. Yeah. Because if you're carrying out 150 pounds, and, I mean, I've done that a few times, and you don't have a trekking pole, it's miserable. It's way worse. I mean, you go Azerbaijan, they get really long poles, about not quite as tall as you are maybe. And some of them are taller than you are. And they dig them in the slope with two hands, and that works too. But... I, I like. I mean, for no, most normal human hunting, a trekking pole is great. Yeah. No, yeah. I you, I just got my first set last year. I got a set of Lecky carbon fibers and packed out two elk in a matter of ten uh-huh. days. And uh, I won't go anywhere without them now. And a lot of it was, you know, a lot of it was downhill. So when uh-huh. you're going downhill, it helps take a lot of that friction off your knees and in your lower back. And they, they, I think they, they take a lot of that weight off your it's off huge. your back. It's huge. 
really good on your knees yeah. also. Okay. Um, in terms of optics, um, you know, when you're in the backcountry, you know, obviously optics, depending on weight and what you bring is critical. Um, if you had the choice of bringing a good set of binoculars or a spotting scope, I mean, in your opinion, you know, in your professional opinion, what would you rather have on a, on a trip like that? Well, if you don't have binoculars, you're screwed. So you have to have binoculars. Um, Spine scope, though, if you want a trophy hunt and you want to look at the far mountain without walking over there to save time, you need a spotting scope, and you need a good one. I mean, a lot of people use 65 millimeters, 60 millimeters to save weight. No, I, I carry everything 80, 85 mil, and I want something that on the upper end is 50 power or more. Um, pretty much on spotting scopes, I, for me, the Leica and the Swarovski are the two best ones. Um, Zeiss is also good, but I, right now I'm using the Leica. I've used the Swarovski. The new ones are split in half. Mm-hmm. Those are my, those are quite a bit better quality because they come with a wider angle eyepiece, and those are an excellent product. Um, also, uh, for binoculars, always have a laser rangefinder. For me, because it's it's if I'm especially if I'm guiding in a mountain environment, because it's built in. I got one thing. I can look. I can judge. I can call your shots uh, with a rangefinder and fix fix any shooting problems we're having. So for me, laser rangefinder binoculars. Now, if mm-hmm. I'm hunting an area where not hunting long range um, with a rifle, you don't. You know, I have. I still have a pair of 8.5 to 42 um, Swarovskis, which I use if I'm hunting Africa, or if I'm hunting, you know, maybe black bear in the forest or something like this, where I don't need a rangefinder. You don't need like 15s think, for that. No, I, I like honestly all around binoculars. The average person better off with an eight and a half, eight or eight and a half. If you're hunting mainly sheep, then a 10 is has yeah. its advantages. I the best. If you want to be the guy who spots the most of everybody, have a 15-power Swarovski or Zeiss on a tripod. It's still manageable. I mean, I know people are using 20- and 30-power type huge binoculars. They mm-hmm. look like two spine scopes glued together. Yeah. And dual that's fine. I, dual eyepieces like the Koas yeah, but, and but, those. But I don't need those for what I do. I'm not saying I don't need them, but I can a 15-power. Uh, if you were, if I were, you and I were hunting and we want to spot everything, we both have binoculars, normal ones, 8s or 10s. And one of us carries a 15 on a tripod, and one of us carries a spotting scope on a tripod. And not these crappy, shitty $100 tripods. We're talking a $500 or $1,000 tripod mm-hmm. that is adequate to hold up an optic of that quality. Mm-hmm. Now, with the binoculars, you can get away with a little bit less because you're dealing with a smaller product. But my, I use a CT Carbon uh, Travel um, Swarovski tripod. And that and the spine scope weigh about nine pounds, about the same as my rifle. That's not too bad. Nine and a half. And that's stable. I can stand. I use an angled eyepiece, so when I'm standing, it's easier on your neck. Um, the only disadvantage of a, an, an angled eyepiece is a little bit hard to find an animal. Mm-hmm. And if you, um, you have to have a little higher profile uh, because of the angled eyepiece, unless you turn it to the side. So your head's going to stick up a little bit more than a straight. But in general, I like the angle better. Yeah. It's also easier if you're using digiscope to look at the camera. I can put this product quite low on the ground, so I can have it a little bit lower, a little more stable. And you want a tripod that has you know, a strong head, that de- de- you know, quick detach. And that way I carry another plate on my camera or my video camera, and then I can go back and forth. And uh, I la- for if you're using a, the 15s on a tripod, I like also, a, on all these, I like the head that not, I don't like the squeeze head. And the reason I don't like the squeeze head. pistol grip. Yeah, I don't like those. And the reason is, is because if you're trying to pan an entire mountain and break it apart like a grid, you can't stay on the plane. I like go right and left. Yeah, after I lock it down level, right and left, half of you, and then drop it down a half of you and go left, every view a half, and that way I'm always looking in the center of the scope. If you have a squeeze head, squeeze heads are good for quick checks. Like if you 
are going to a shooting range, you want to go on the target quick, or you see a mule deer. But if you're actually using the spotting scope as a, like a binocular to break down the mountain to spot stuff, you need a video head. So you need something that has something a, that pans a, a, for you, panning right and left, locking 90 degrees up and down. And if you don't have that, you are, you know, you're in a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. You're going to miss places on the mountain. You're not going to be able to grid it properly. And I want to look at every rock. You're looking for stone sheep. I mean, they're, they're not called stone sheep because they look like a stone, but that's a good name for them. Mm -hmm. So you have to, and desert sheep can be really difficult too. Yeah. Uh, so can bighorns. But, um, you know, ibex are extremely hard to spot in the, in, in the rocks, extremely hard. They're like a stone sheep. So, yeah, I mean, having a good optics is really, really key. Is it critical that you do put binoculars on tripods? I mean, is that do you find more gain based on that versus having them on your chest? My 10s I use on my chest, but 15s on a bipod, I mean a tripod. Mm -hmm. uh, 10s are also nice, but I, I, you know, if I need the tripod, I use, I use the 15s or I use the, um, the, the spotting scope. Spotting scope. You can do them. I mean, especially if a guy's a little bit shaky. You know, I try and anchor myself into a hill on a rock or might use my walking stick or my gun or something to hold my binoculars steady when I'm glassing or mm -hmm. my elbows on my knees or something. Yeah. I just don't stand up and look. If you're actually going to do a lot of standing and looking, hands down, eights are way better. It's amazing. You actually spot more. Wider field of view on the eights. Less shake. Yeah. You look, try looking through your rifle scope and 20 power when you're puffing and huffing with a high heart rate versus four power. On four power, it doesn't look like you're wiggling. At 20, everything is moving. Yeah. Same thing with binoculars. You look through an eight, it's not wiggling and jiggling. On eight, at 10, it starts to be bad. At 15, it's a disaster. Yeah. So yeah. you have Magnifies to have a try. It. The higher the power, the more critical. Same with a rifle rest. You have a 20 power rifle scope and you don't have a good rest. It's, you're going to have, it's like, whoa, this thing is all over the place. On four power, it's like, I'm pretty stable. So, you, yeah, you have to be stable the higher power you have. Yep. On altitude sickness, um, obviously, I'm sure you've dealt with that. How do you get folks acclimatized in some of those higher elevations in Asia? Is it some people will sleep in a hypoxia chamber at home or not chamber with the mask and stuff? I've never done that. I just go, and uh, you can take some medications if you want to, like Diamox. Some people take Cialis, um, which is obviously a rectal medic medicine, but it dilates your blood vessels, so it can also work to prevent altitude sickness. Um, so some guys are using a combination of Diamox and Cialis. Um, some people use Viagra. But in general, I don't use anything. Okay. Um, I just eat well. I take some of the Wilderness Athlete High Altitude Advantage. I can't say that it has or hasn't made a huge difference, but it doesn't hurt mm -hmm. to have good nutrition. Some people take iron, makes your blood a little bit heavier, makes it a little bit easier for oxygen to hold on to it. I guess you could always do like the cyclists used to do in blood dope. That mm -hmm. would probably help, but we've never tried that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You can take, I mean, if you have, maybe, some. sometimes I'll take an aspirin a day, um, drink a lot of water. For the first two days you get the high altitude, don't try and be a hero. Yeah. Acclimatize without overexertion. I suppose you do so many of these hunts that once you kind of push through the first one, you're probably good for, you know, for a series of hunts until well, you... Once you're over there, it, it takes about a week to get acclimatized fully at 15,000 feet if you're coming from sea level. One of my doctor friends told me it was about 2,500 feet a day. Okay. That's what you, so if you start at sea level and you go up to 15,000 feet, it might take up to six days. If you started at 6,000 feet, it might take four days to get pretty acclimatized. Your body will get adjusted. So that's why the first day you're there and you come from sea level and you're sleeping at 12,000, hunting at 14, 15, it's, it's a wide, you know, everything is not working well. Your brain is not functioning right. Your body's not functioning right. It's just not a good situation. Yeah. Now, I've, I've had 
some friends that have brought into Montana that have come from sea level within the same day and were at you know seven eight thousand feet and started to get headaches and exactly and uh, just totally broke down after the first mm-hmm. day and just needed a day to rest and exactly and just you know try to acclimate a little bit to that mm-hmm. elevation. Okay. Um, so for you, what other trade shows, um, do you have planned? Are you going to plan on hitting any more on the circuit or are you done? Yeah, I'll do or? the SCI show. I'll do the Grand Slam Mova show and I'll do this show in Utah. Okay. The Western Expo. So you'll be in Salt Lake as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to end on, I was reading a blog that you wrote, I think for QU a few years ago, and there was some discussion around some close calls you've had around potentially falling, capsizing boats, grizzly bears, almost like near-death type experiences. Are there any lessons or any stories that you've learned based on some of those events that you'd like to share? <laughs> well, I've been charged a couple times by grizzlies that were wounded, but, I mean, they wouldn't have messed with us if it wasn't for the hunters shooting them with a bow. So, I mean, both those were I, I shot with rifles, but probably, I mean, if you're, if you're good with a rifle, and you know that it could happen. It's not like you're walking down the trail with your gun on your shoulder and somebody, you know, you walk onto a kill and a grizzly bear grabs you by the back of the head. You know, I mean, I, I, you know you're ready for it. Your gun is ready. You're mentally ready that you could, the shit could hit the fan. Mm-hmm. So it's dangerous, but that's what you're looking for. It's kind of like guys that go on hunting Cape Buffalo. They're not hunting jackrabbits. They know they have a 470 or a 416 for a reason, and if they don't know how to use it, they shouldn't be there. It's like driving a car 200 miles an hour. If you don't have a harness on and a helmet and you wreck, you're, you're, you're going to die. Yeah. And even if you do, you can still die. So those are the kind of things you're prepared for typically. Um, but like falling off of a mountain because you, you took a one step um, wrong, uh, you know, you have to pay attention to where you jump. I mean, I, I fall once because I jumped from one rock to the next and my feet went out from underneath me. And luckily, I, you know, you got to turn over on your back because I landed on my face, <laughs> um, on my side, and almost broke my nose, and so blood was just squirted everywhere, and, <laughs> and I turned over instantly and, and went off about two four to six foot ledges, and then each time I landed, I landed with my legs bent and dug into the ground and my hands because I had a big pack on seventy eighty pound pack, for sure it was seventy, um, and then the, the next one was the bad one. If I would have gone off it, I would have been screwed, would have broke something, could have died. Depending on how you landed. If you landed on your feet and your back, you would have broke legs, damaged your spine, but probably would have lived. If you would have landed sideways or head first, you would have died for sure. So, because it was a series of like straight down and like 80%, 70% slopes where you can't stop and there's no way to dig in. So, you're not going to stop until you slam into boulders. So, and then in New Zealand, I almost, that was in Turkey. And in New Zealand, I slipped on a mountain. Uh, caught myself, had to grab the grass. Uh, I dropped my gun and stuff. I didn't have a pack on, luckily. Um, and then I've had one time a boat. We overloaded a boat, tried to go across, just take a little dog leg off a lake. You know, only going about 800 yards, and it took on, started taking the water, and, and then went submerged, and all our packs were floating. We didn't have enough life jackets, and oh, just <laughs> we all got moderate hypothermia, and, and uh, luckily we had one life jacket and a. Uh, one of the guys' packs was floating well, and they they swam to shore because I didn't. And then the, my friend came back and grabbed me, brought the life jacket back after he, uh, you know, got to shore. And because um, we gave it, we gave the life jacket to the my one friend, and the other guy just swam with his pack. So he dropped his pack, threw the life jacket on, because I said I can't swim. I over there, I was I had too much water in my lungs, and was coughing up, and actually had blood, and I was coughing up, and too cold, and. I, I, so I just crawled up on top of the boat, but I was starting to freeze. So, you know, it was cold. It was like 40-degree 40, 40 water, 42-degree water, and about 
32 degree, 33 degree air. It yeah. was just above freezing. Hypothermia sets in quick. Yeah, and, that and we were in the water for over 40 minutes, so um, it doesn't geez. take long. So wow. In the next couple of days, it felt like we got all got hit by a semi. I bet. Just from the you know, the impact and the and the stress and everything of it. Wow. So you have to be yeah life. If we all had our life jackets on, we just would have swam right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but we thought we could stay with the boat, and the boat was drifting ashore, but it was taking too long. That was a problem. We thought we could swim with the boat and push it, but we had just enough wind that was keeping us out. It eventually went to shore, but it, and we were close, but not close enough. So, yeah, life jackets are key when you're in, in cold water. Yeah. I find a, a lake more dangerous than a river because in the river, you can swim a little bit. And I've, I've flowed down a river once with a heavy pack on because the water came up due to flooding. And I had to cross the river, so I just trapped everything on. I knew I was going to probably end up swimming. And you stay, you stay with your pack down. If you once you start, if you try swimming like sideways, your pack is lighter than you are, and your body mass, will, it, the pack wants to right itself and push your face into the water. So you got to keep your arms and legs out wide. A lot of times, just I, I had a walking stick, and I would push myself with a walking stick and swim with my left hand. And you, you start to go around a corner of a river. When I was only in the river, maybe a hundred yards, and um, so I was able to get out. And about it had probably actually only lasted about 15 seconds. You know, really, when I was swimming, because mm-hmm. it wasn't that wide, but it was fast. Wow. The water was about five feet, four to five feet deep, and normally it was about two feet, and it doubled in size in the course of about four days due to the torrential rain and melting glaciers and snowpacks. So yeah, I'd figure in a hundred backpack trips, you've probably seen and, and been exposed to a lot of different conditions that most people will never see in their lifetime. Quite a few, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, just to do a quick recap, um, overall, the 27, 2017 Sheep Show. What was your overall summary of, of how the actual show went? I think it went pretty well. I mean, I heard some of the auction items brought well. I, I, I didn't go to all the auctions. I only saw a couple of them. So I can't say. But, I mean, normally uh, I think the election helped. I think most of our clients in the industry and people who are business people are, you know, more a little more confident about, you know, laws and regulations and, and more business-friendly environment. So it seemed to be good. This show never has a gigantic turnout because it's a very explicit crowd mm-hmm. of people that are passionate backpack, horseback, um, you know, extreme, you know, sheep hunting. So it's, and that's a fairly small niche. You know, if you want to compare like Marco Polo hunting to people that climb Mount Everest, more people, way more people go to Mount Everest every year than go Marco Polo hunting. Now, maybe not more people summit Everest. I don't know what the statistics would be, but probably even more people summit Everest than shoot a high alta or Gali or Marco Polo. So it's a fairly small niche of people if you want to mm-hmm. put it in perspective. Yeah. When you look at millions of whitetail shot versus a few, you know, 100 Marco Polo or whatever shot, there's a big difference. Yeah. How about overall for you and Asian Mountain Outfitters? Did you get pretty good traffic through your booth for the yeah, three days? Yeah, it's good. I mean, what happens when you know a lot of people that show it ends up being a social thing a lot of past clients and friends so sometimes you might miss some of the new guys so you try and get their information and follow up on the phone and make sure that people know what they're getting into before they book a hunt but i think hunters on information overload you got social media you have um you know you have trade shows you have magazines you have all this stuff tv shows youtube videos and and you know trying to set yourself apart where hunters remember you I think there's a lot of options. It'd be like dating sites. Somebody goes on a dating site. The world is huge now. You can go mm-hmm. date somebody from any part of the world before it was in the town they lived in or the state they lived in. Same thing with hunting. Now you're exposed to all these hunt opportunities from people all around the world, and everybody comes across as an expert or however. So you have to set yourself apart and hopefully be the one of the last people they talk to. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, they might. Some people book on spontaneity, right? They have the right feeling, they have the right time, they want to spend some money. 
So sometimes people book hunts, maybe that's not the best fit for them because it was a good sales pitch or they were emotionally ready to book something and they didn't do the research. So I tell people to do the research, but also talk to the right references. I mean, an outfitter can give you a reference and that hunter's only hunted with one company one time. And yeah, he, to him, it's great. Mm-hmm. Like the first time a guy dri- you know, drives a Datsun pickup truck, if he came from a third world country, he thinks it's a great vehicle. Um, then he go drives a Ferrari you know, Enzo, and you go, what, you know, that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. And so talk, if you're going to get references, talk to hunters that have hunted a lot of places and can give you an actual reference that's realistic, not just somebody's, oh, that outfitter was terrible, right? Well, mm-hmm. it really wasn't terrible. That's the way all the hunts are. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to have a guide that doesn't speak good English. You're going to have bad food. Um, so you got to take some of your own food. you got to learn a few words. you got to be a big boy and learn how to judge animals yourself, too. So... It's all relative. So when, when you he- read or hear bad things about outfitters, you know, you have to always take it with a grain of salt. Sometimes it's true, and other times it was one person's perspective mm-hmm. that was not, you know, indicative of the entire experience that most people would have. Yeah. So trying to sort out, you know, who's the expert and who's not the expert is a little bit difficult. Yeah. I mean, you've got a pretty wide portfolio of places you can hunt and animals you can hunt. So I think you you just distinguish yourself based on that because what I noticed there was a lot of folks that just specifically focus on you know hunting in Turkey or just certain countries but you provide a wide gamut so I think it you have a little bit of a competitive advantage based on that well I have a lot of connections in the hunting world and I I give a lot of people advice on where to go and I have have a few clients that I help personally plan their trips for them you know they they give me a five-year hunting goal Mm -hmm. list and uh, I try and put them in good positions the right time of the year the right outfitter so I'm not really a booking agent. I don't really collect commissions uh, very often, but uh, I prefer to actually have people pay me to find them the best hunts, and I don't like chasing commissions. And I can send them where the best, I call it full client representation. It's a value-added service, not um, not just a booking agency. Yeah. Because a lot of times the booking agencies aren't doing their customer the right service either. No. Because they're booking them with the inventory they have, not with the outfitter they should be going with. Correct. Yeah, and there's a anymore there's a lot of there they've really it's turned into a booking agency type business where you just show up and they'll book you the hunt and they're not looking for the specific outfitter so exactly okay Um, well we're going to go ahead and and close down Um, you know I appreciate you coming on today Brian Um, you know your insight is obviously um, very important I think the listeners will 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 take away quite a few things Um, just let everyone know how they can get a hold of you if someone was to want to book a hunt with Asian Mountain Outfitters or if they wanted to get a hold of you how could they do that the easiest way is just go to the website asianmountainoutfitters.com and uh, my phone number and email and a few YouTube videos and some other stuff is there. We're going to be updating it this winter. I haven't done a lot to the website in a year or two. And I'm, I mean, I use social media, but I, I mean, I, I've looked at so many hunting pictures over over the over my life that I'm not. I don't get as excited about it as you know hunters have never mm-hmm. done it before. So I, I try and I'm gotta try and keep the content a little more fresh. Um, but it, generally, that's the best way. Okay. And then on your website, you've got your contact information or emails yep. on there. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And I use text messaging a lot, um, you know, when I'm traveling because it works well. And you know what comes in. It's faster than a... But I believe still if I have a hunter serious, uh, I pick up the phone and we, we talk. Yeah. Explain. And I, I, I ask a lot of questions and I can really decide what he's really looking for. So I interview the hunter as much as he does me, because mm-hmm. I might say, no, no, this is not what you want. You need to go over here instead of here. Because some people think they want this, but they really don't know what they want. Sure. Other people know exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. So a part of my job as a hunter, as a guide, as an outfitter, agent, is to uh, inform them, educate them, and listen to their needs and goals, and then try and make a plan that'll work for them long term. Okay. Because at the end of the day, I'm a hunter first, guide second. Yeah. 
I would never give up hunting to go guiding if I had to give up hunting, period. I mean, I would do it for a short period for economic reasons, uh, not long-term, though, if I had to choose between hunting or guiding. And that's probably what makes me, makes me passionate, though, too, is the hunting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a lot of guides, are they just like being in the mountains. They like playing with their horses and, and their, their gear. But I really like hunting. And so I do better with hunters that are fairly, fairly keen. Yeah. If a guy just wants to collect an animal and is worried about the food and the toilet situation, I'm probably not the best guide sure. for them. But I think to be a good guide, you have to be a hunter. I think that's that's just part of it. If you're not a hunter, you'll never be as successful. Yeah. I'd rather go with a guy who's a little bit grouchy or a little bit not good in English or a little bit whatever, but he, he thinks like a predator. Mm-hmm. A good guide needs to be like a predator. Yeah. <clears throat> and some people haven't. Some people don't. Yeah. It's kind of like, instinct. Yeah. I mean, some people just have that ability. Other people can hunt their whole life, <clears throat> and they can't close. Yeah, they can't seal the deal when the No, it's when like it's Usain the, Bolt, I guarantee you didn't run a 15-second 100-meter dash before he trained. He was still 11 seconds or 10 and a half without training. Yeah. And then training gets him under 10. Yeah, he's a, yeah. lightning speed. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Brian. Well, good luck uh, at SCI and, and some of the additional um, trade shows you got coming up. I will be at the Salt Lake Show, so maybe we can hook up and uh, you know catch up while you're there and um, I'm excited for that show. I, I've always enjoyed the, the hunting expo in Salt Lake because it is specifically hunting. You know, SCI, you start to cater to a lot of different, um, you know, fishing and other outdoor ventures, but I do like that Western expo. So I'll be there and uh, we'll have to catch up and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, your travels are safe uh, this spring. And then uh, maybe this fall we'll catch up and see uh, what you got going on. I'm I'm interested at some point in possibly coming out and, and doing an Ibex hunt for sure. It's on my list. It's actually one of the top of my list. So I've got an Africa hunt on the books right now that I need to hopefully try to do this year, next year. But um, Ibex is definitely on my list. Yeah, so. awesome animal. Yeah. And very affordable when you look at international hunting. Sure. I mean, you start looking at elephants and lions and uh, high out there, golly, and Markor, those are out of most people's price range. But yeah. Ibex and Tour and... Uh, you know, those are definitely, they're cheaper than a lot of your um, Western hunts. That, sure. You know, to get a landowner tag. Yeah. For landowner the tags area. or doll yep. sheep tags now. Or, oh, you know. Yeah, those are way less, yeah. exp- way more expensive than these, some I of these Central hunts. Asian hunts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, uh, thanks again, Brian. Uh, I appreciate your insight and uh, we'll keep in touch. And I want to thank everyone for listening and we'll catch up with you guys next time on another adventure on the RNA Outdoors podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Lucas Paw host of the RNA Outdoors podcast, please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, go to Podcasts app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it'll automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or just use our website, www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, Instagram at Rod N Arrow Outdoors, and Facebook, RNA Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, get involved with conservation efforts, and know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, 
See you guys on the next ridge.